0: I've noticed a real change lately, a shift in attitudes among the scientists, doctors, public health officials, and other experts who've been quoted in the media and have been posting on Twitter about the pandemic. For a long time, it was a general rule that they would advocate maximum precautions and maximum vigilance to avoid the virus. And now I'm hearing a lot about learning to live with risk and learning to live with the virus. What's changed? Is it a change of heart? Is it a change of science? What can we attribute this to? To understand what's going on, I think it helps to consider the fact that science can only tell you about relative risks of different activities, but it can't tell you how much risk is acceptable. That's something I learned from risk communication consultant Peter Sandman, who's been a guest on some earlier episodes. I think that second part of the equation, how much risk is acceptable, is determined by a lot of Other factors beyond science, values, ethics, culture, and, yes, politics. The science and politics of living with the virus is the topic of today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. My guest today is Amesh Adalja. He's an infectious disease expert and a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. We're going to talk about the latest science and what that can tell us about what constitutes a big risk and what constitutes a tiny risk, especially among vaccinated people. And he'll also talk about values. He's an advocate for a balanced approach called harm reduction. That's something that was deployed in the AIDS pandemic to find a way to help people with HIV continue to have reasonably safe relationships rather than asking them to give up love and sex forever. I kicked off the discussion by asking Dr. Adalja what he thought about some of the mixed messages I've seen in the media regarding the risks of breakthrough infections. (music) some numbers, because the New York Times had a piece saying that there's a 1 in 5,000 chance each day of getting a breakthrough infection. I wasn't really sure how that could be interpreted. People are very confused right now about whether they should be worried about a breakthrough infection, whether the risk is big, small, medium. And that one in 5,000, I think a lot of people took that, to mean the risk is very small, but it would help to have some context.
1: The important thing to know is if you get one, it's unlikely to be a major significant event in terms of a health risk to you. And that's what the vaccines are designed to do. It's just that right now, with this public health emergency ongoing, that a breakthrough infection does have implications in terms of quarantine, isolation, contact tracing, And I think that's what more people are worried about than the breakthrough infection itself, because these breakthrough infections tend to be mild, tend not to require even a doctor's visit.
0: Okay, so the concern is that you'll give it to someone who's unvaccinated.
1: So so the issue with breakthrough infections is, yes, they can occur and there may be certain circumstances when they're contagious. But what we found is that people who have a breakthrough infection, the period of contagiousness is very short compared to someone who doesn't have any vaccine-induced immunity or has no immunity. So the risk that you pose to others is, is very small and really only under certain circumstances. There's even data to show that if you try to cultivate the virus from the nose of people with the breakthrough infections, that it is a very defective virus and may not even be able to infect cells in a laboratory setting. So I think that the risk of contagiousness from a vaccinated person is much, much lower than someone that is unvaccinated. And it occurs for a very short period of time. And it can be mitigated with with testing and with masks.
0: So, you know, there was a piece recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education where an author expressed a lot of outrage because professors are being asked to teach in person again. And basically the implication that this person had was they're trying to kill us, you know, that we're so they are high risk people, older people. The vaccines aren't that effective against people who are immunocompromised. So is that outrage justified?
1: No, I don't think that that's an accurate representation of what's going on. The first point to make is is that COVID-19 is a virus that's not going to be eradicated. It's not going to be eliminated. There will be COVID cases and COVID risks 15 years from now, 25 years from now. We are not getting to COVID zero. The goal has always been to tame this virus, to make it more like other respiratory viruses we deal with year in and year out. So for those people who are not, okay with the protection the vaccine affords them, I don't think that they're ever going to be okay with anything because they have this, I think, magical view that somehow the post-pandemic world is going to be 2019 where there's no COVID. That's just not the case. The post-pandemic world is going to be a world in which COVID is present, where there is a baseline risk of cases, a baseline risk of hospitalizations, and a baseline number of deaths that happen every year. It's just not going to be enough to crush the hospital system because the disease will become more manageable
0: makes the point that harm reduction is a better way forward than either declaring things over when it isn't or trying to convince everyone to take extreme precautions forever.
1: I think that we've kind of instilled in this population, probably because of the abstinence only approach that many public health authorities took, this inability to risk calculate that now any COVID risk is not acceptable. And I think that's just not realistic. It's, it's kind of a fantasy because this virus is established itself in the human population. It's not going magically back into bats. So you have to learn how to risk calculate. You have to learn how to make measured decisions regarding your risk. And the best way to do that is to be vaccinated because you know then that this virus is not going to pose a major threat to your health. And if you're in those high-risk groups where there may have been protection against severe disease that had waned, then you think about getting a booster. Or if you're an immunosuppressed person, you think about three doses up front. There's ways to mitigate this. And I think that's, that's important. People have to learn how to live with this virus because the virus is going to live with us whether we like it or not.
0: I think that's a good point. And I saw that you tweeted a piece that I also tweeted by Lucy McBride in The Atlantic that said, you know, people do have to learn to live with their risk. I mean, one of the things I think there's a lot of conflict over is that people have been told over and over and over and over again that masks protect others. And so I think a lot of people are outraged that the world isn't going to keep wearing a mask to protect them. And I wonder, do you think that students should always wear a mask, that maybe kids should always wear a mask in school because RSV and, you know, continued uh, small risk from COVID? Or is it is it time we start rethinking that?
1: It is time that we start rethinking it, clearly for unvaccinated people that are in high-risk situations. Masks are going to be important, and I do recommend if you're an unvaccinated person in a high-risk situation where there's a lot of community spread of COVID-19 and you haven't just been tested a minute before you went into this event, a mask might be useful. But for the fully vaccinated, I think that masks provide marginal benefit against COVID-19 because, again, you're preventing a mild illness if you're fully vaccinated, and I don't know that many people want to do that. There may be some people that are really risk-averse that will continue to do that, but I don't think it necessarily has to be public health guidance. But I do think that there has to sort of be a reckoning that COVID-19 is is now something that's going to be baked into the risk calculations we make every day. When you live in society, you assume certain risks, that there are going to be respiratory viruses that you get. Everybody had assumed a risk of influenza or assumed a risk of common cold occurring, and eventually COVID-19 is going to be like that.
0: Harm reduction and abstinence only do rely on different values. Harm reduction takes quality of life into consideration as well as quantity of life. But there is, perhaps, a scientific reason to favor harm reduction, and that's sustainability. Because for a long time, science has pointed to the fact that this disease isn't going away. And that means a sustainable approach would be following the science more than an extreme, short-term approach. Do you think that this is a fault of public understanding or that it was drummed into people by the public health community and there hasn't been much transparency about this change in thinking?
1: It's a combination of both. Clearly, our public health authorities during the very first days of this pandemic and continuing even today to some extent now, basically discarded everything they knew about a concept called harm reduction, which is something that comes from sexually transmitted infections, from HIV, from injection drug use, about giving people tools to take risks, to teach them how to do things safer, to show them what's higher risk, what's lower risk. And most of that was discarded in favor of an abstinence-only approach. And I think that stunted the ability of of the population, or at least large portions of the population, to be able to think, okay, there's going to be a COVID risk. How do I manage it? I'll do this outdoors. I'll wear a mask. I'll take a test before. All of that was not really on the table. It was never do this, never outdoor dine, never go trick-or-treating, never do this, never do that. And people did it anyway.
0: Yes, of course they did. Well, this gets at something. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience, but I saw a paper today in Nature, which was about a correlation between people who are skeptical of science, as the authors of this paper put it, and people who disobeyed social distancing orders, but it turned out they were conflating social distancing with stay-at-home orders. And I never thought shelter-in-place orders were very scientific. I thought I could go out running or riding my bike by myself. I'm not going to give anybody a disease. And it never made any sense. And I know a lot of people stayed home, but they visited and hung out with friends. A lot of them got covid
1: Again, I think this is really just another example of abstinence-only thinking crept into COVID-19 policy. And clearly, we learned very early on that outdoor transmission was very low risk. But yet we had people out there chasing joggers around that weren't wearing masks.
0: I got chased by the police for jogging early in April before the mask thing. And honestly, it's common sense. You're miles away from everybody. You're by yourself. I mean, what on earth got people thinking that way? It's it's ridiculous.
1: I, I think it was panic and fear of the unknown and just public health and other governmental authorities looking for one size fits all solutions, looking for blunt tools instead of precision guided or nuanced tools. And and, and that really interfered with people's ability to learn how to take risks. And sometimes it actually paradoxically made things worse. Oh yeah, because people weren't didn't get
0: chased by the police when they were hanging out in their house with their friends.
1: Exactly. And if you were unable to outdoor dine in California, for example, you just invite your friends over to your basement to watch a football game together, which is more higher risk than, than outdoor dining. So I think that there was a lot of problems that really stem from this inability to, to have really precision guided public health recommendations.
0: Okay, well, that's the end of my rant. Though I will add one more question related to stuff I've seen around me. There's There are playgrounds in my town. I'm in Providence. It's maybe not the strictest place, but it's not exactly a, a red state. And, you know, there were signs everywhere saying social distance mask, like it looked like the da- most dangerous place in the world once they actually let people back in. That was a year ago when cases were actually lower than they are now. And then the signs went away, and there was no explanation. It wasn't like, oh, things are better now, or the science somehow was changed, or maybe the right explanation is, we were wrong. Sorry, you should have always been able to use this playground.
1: I definitely think that there was a lot of things that needed to be scaled back, for example, playgrounds or the people that were maniacally washing their groceries or washing their mail. Uh, All of that really, were things that were never recommended, things that I never did or never advocated doing and tried to debunk. But it was very hard in those early days because of people's risk tolerance being so low at that point.
0: Oh, but it wasn't people. The signs were put up by the city.
1: Right. So I definitely think that there were public health authorities that were advising government agencies to take to to minimize all risks. And and that's what was being incorporated and nobody was thinking about the long term consequences of this everybody was making short short range decisions not thinking about the cascading impacts on well-being on overall health on other things and and i think it's You know, I think this is a lesson that you have to really try and meet people where they are and you have to think long term in how sustainable certain approaches are and recognize that people have different value hierarchies. And for some people, some risks might be worth taking. And so you provide them tools to do those risks or you teach them how to do that or you give them, you know, a toolkit that can be implemented to make things safer rather than telling people never to do something and and really just stultify their ability to actually learn how to, to cope with something that's not going away.
0: I think one of the problems with the previous approach to the pandemic wasn't just that it was abstinence only, but that it was something worse. It was that public health was telling us about the wrong risks, that is harping on things that didn't really matter and ignoring some things that did matter. So it wasn't so much an overreaction as a misguided reaction that was both too restrictive and not nearly protective enough.
1: This wasn't a short-term outbreak that was just gonna go away. And I think that many people did not really incorporate that into their thinking. And they thought that this was something that they had to use very blunt tools for. And I think that's come back to, to haunt us. And I think that there has been a breach now between the public and, and public health and infectious disease authorities that is going to be very hard to overcome because of so much of that abstinence only. And it was very hard some being someone who was advocating the harm reduction approach from the very beginning to, to actually be able to, to get a foothold because there was so much ostracism and criticism if you told people it's okay to do this or it's okay to do that. I, I think it was just very backwards and very different from everything else we do in the field when, when it comes to HIV, where we talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis or wearing a condom or getting tested. All of that type of thing was not applied to COVID. And I think it, it's, it's going to come back to haunt us with the next infectious disease emergency.
0: Did you get attacked for... Your harm reduction approach.
1: I get attacked on all sides, from every side, for everything I say. So it's just usual. I get attacked from the left. I get attacked from the left. I get attacked from the right. Uh, I get attacked every day. I get threats. Yeah, and I go on all the three. I go on all three major cable networks all the time, which I did on purpose so that I would not be pigeonholed. But they, but that just means you get double the hate mail when you, or triple the hate mail when you do.
0: What is the biggest thing people are upset with you over? Is there any pattern?
1: just a certain question. Some, some people don't like the harm reduction approach. Some people don't like the fact that I might criticize the people for not getting vaccinated or that I think Donald Trump's policies were really part and parcel of what why COVID-19 was so bad or, or whatever it might be. They, the left and the right will find something to attack you on. It's just uh, difficult to predict what they're going to be upset about. But I think in general, I would say that the population views COVID and views probably everything through whatever tribe they belong to. And if you say something that is not consistent with the tribe's view on something, whatever tribe that might be, you often get criticized and threatened.
0: I'd like to get back to this notion of following the science, and I think doing that means finding a way to separate values from scientific judgments. I think that's the only way forward so that people can get good science-based information and advice in order to gauge their own risks. I'm really glad that you're taking this harm reduction approach. This gets it really this division between science and values, and I think they get conflated, that it seems like harm reduction is an approach, but people tend to take their risk calculations as science, whether it's abstinence only, that gets conflated with science. Do you think there's a a problem with people being unable to separate science from values and uh, value-related decisions?
1: I do think that people assumed that everyone's values were the same, that everybody had the same hierarchy of values. And that's not the case. For some people going to visit their grandmother or for a grandmother wanting to visit their grandchild, that might have outweighed the risk of COVID-19. And I think that people took a one-size-fits-all approach and didn't really account for how people have different value hierarchies and which risks are worth taking for certain people and which risks aren't. I mean, one example is this is when they were Protests after George Floyd's murder. For those people, the value of the protest, the value of having their voices heard, was outweighed by the risk of COVID.
0: Well, that that gets to you know this sort of moral outrage component that people are morally outraged by people going to the beach last summer or the summer before last. Now they're morally outraged by seeing pictures of people in outdoor stadiums, and so. I think a lot of us just are, are not really afraid of the disease anymore, but are just wondering how to behave. You know, what is the moral way to behave now? Is it not obviously not to stay home forever, but should we all be masking forever? Is that the only moral way to behave? Where do we draw the line?
1: To me, the line is always, you know, don't put other people at undue risk. And the best way to do that is to get vaccinated. And that not only gives your life an individual benefit, but uh, it, but it also protects others from you. So I think, you know, you don't have a right to infect other people with something that is not an innocuous thing. That's, that's where I kind of draw where I think that the moral issue is. And you also have a moral, you, you have a moral right to pursue things that are important to you. And I think you've got to, you have to kind of weigh those types of things together and come up with an integrated approach to this. And many people can't do that. I don't think it's immoral not to wear masks, but if you're unvaccinated or if you're sick and you go into a place that's indoors with lots of people there, that's immoral because you're putting people at risk.
0: Whether or not masks are part of the new normal, I think it's pretty clear they're not going away anytime soon. And so I think it's important to talk about when they matter and when they don't matter very much.
1: I don't think there's any value in, in in wearing masks except for maybe you know a tightly packed political rally or some special type of event where where people are really on top of each other. But again, for the fully vaccinated, I think there's really a marginal benefit to wearing masks. And I think that if you're fully vaccinated, you have very little to fear from other people, especially if you you know you've gotten your boosters. If you fall into that recommended group, and I think people have to l- to learn to acclimatize to that and not give people dirty looks or shame people because. That's not productive. And it actually just continues to keep people in their tribes and reinforce all of this kind of divisiveness that the pandemic, that the pandemic kind of preyed upon.
0: Do you see any, do you see us as, as in the new normal now? Are we, is this the new normal or do you think that the new normal is yet to come?
1: We're getting closer to the new normal. I think when we don't have to worry about hospital capacity anymore, that will be when the new normal really is in place. Right now, we still have hospitals that are having difficult times with capacity issues. To me, that's always been the biggest concern with COVID-19 is hospitals being unable to operate not being able to do to render all the care that they need to render to everybody with every disease process, not just COVID. And, and there are some hospitals in this country, especially smaller rural hospitals that are still struggling. When we've largely decoupled cases from hospitalizations, I think that's really where we see this new normalcy where COVID becomes a more manageable respiratory illness, and we're not worried about hospital beds not having patients being transferred from state to state. That's that's still an issue in some parts of the country, not all. It's more of a regional problem now. Once that risk is, is gone, I think then you're going to see the, the full new normal.
0: Okay, so I have two really quick, quick questions, and then I'll let you go. One is, you know, a lot of us look at the data because it sort of gets addictive, and it's hard to know how full does a hospital have to be with COVID patients before it's overwhelmed. In Rhode Island, we've had up to 400 COVID patients in our hospital. Now we have about 80. Is that still bad? Is that okay? Who are these people? Are they are an unvaccinated people, or breakthrough cases, and what does it mean for those of us who are trying to go back to normal?
1: Well, how full a hospital needs to be with COVID patients to be in trouble is going to depend on the hospital and what other types of activities they perform. So I worked in a hospital yesterday. That's about a 220-bed hospital. They had they have over 40 patients there with COVID. Over 85% of them are unvaccinated. That's hard for a hospital to cope with. The ER waiting times are Probably six times higher than what they had been in the past because there's no beds and people are waiting in the ER for beds. So clearly, that's a hospital that's having trouble. So it's it's going to be different and it's going to depend upon what, what's going on in that community in terms of what services that hospital provides and, and what the burden is. So it may not be the same everywhere, but it is largely the unvaccinated population in a community that are crushing those hospitals. But that doesn't mean everybody else has to be on hold because it's, it's not the vaccinated that are driving cases. It's not the vaccinated that are putting hospitals into crisis. It is the unvaccinated. So I don't think if you're if you're a vaccinated person, I think you can go back to your life. I, it's your, your risk of transmitting to other people, your risk of being hospitalized is so low that I think you should go back to your life. If you're unvaccinated, you should get vaccinated uh, if you're old enough to be vaccinated. If not, you should be continuing to be be, be careful and mindful of what you're doing, especially if you're one of those people that are high risk. Yesterday, I took care of patients that are in their 70s that are not vaccinated. You know, they, they think that their decision to not get vaccinated was their own personal decision, but yet they showed up for care and now take a bed up.
0: So what is the is it because people are seeing misinformation online? I know this is not one of my last questions, but what on earth would keep a 70 something person from getting this vaccine?
1: misinformation. People, again, they live in their tribes. And if the tribe doesn't think the vaccine is something that they should do, they, they follow what the tribe says. We have a very collectivistic mindset that's driving the anti-vaccine movement. And I think that's what's, what's happened is certain tribes have said that this isn't something that they should get and It doesn't matter what your risk factors are, they don't get it. And I think it's mind boggling to me because they then, um, they then think that this is only going to impact them, but yet they come to their community hospital. And you can see that they're filling up the community hospitals. They're crushing their own communities with their decision. Their decision had a cascading negative impact on, on hospital care. So if you're in those communities and you have a stroke, you may have delayed care because there's an unvaccinated COVID-19 patient that's occupying a bed.
0: Wow. So it seems like the most important thing we can do is to try to convince anybody we know who's been holding out to get that vaccine. It's not easy.
1: The vaccine is the key. It is the solution to, to COVID-19 and it is the pathway to the new normal.
0: As time rolls on, I think public health officials are going to have less and less power over how people actually behave in the new normal. I think Dr. Adalja is right that a lot of it is going to be determined by tribal political views rather than public health recommendations, which have so far been pretty scattered, confusing, and sometimes hard to follow. And some of that is that harm reduction takes a lot more effort and thought on the part of scientists, doctors, and public health officials. Well, preaching abstinence is actually pretty mindless and easy for them. But I think it's no longer possible to ignore the need for sustainability. And so getting harm reduction right is going to be well worth the effort. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glickman with music by Kyle Imperator. You can follow us on Facebook for the latest, but if you'd like to hear more follow the science, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fix.